0: And thank you for listening to the Elements of a Great Training Class Edition of our Real Solutions podcast series. I'm Lisa Baer, and we hope that this podcast will give you an opportunity to dig a bit deeper into topical employment law and human resources subjects and hear directly from our EPS attorney consultant. Employers of all sizes face the prospect of training their workforce. We hope that our discussion today will help you navigate the whys of training, who to train, when to train and how often, and finally, what makes a training effort successful. Spoiler alert, there's also a legal rationale for conducting training that we'll explore as well. We've brought the EPS Training Brain Trust together for this discussion. Joining me today is Stephanie Davis, EPS President, Jessica Caspi, our Philadelphia-based consultant who also develops our training courses, and Denise Kay, our Senior Consultant in Denver. Between them, my colleagues on this panel have delivered thousands of hours of training on every employment law oriented subject that you can imagine, so we're in really good hands for this discussion. Before we get started, I wanted to share some context with our listeners about the training services we offer at EPS. EPS training courses are delivered by our attorney consultants and are unique in their customization. EPS is a certified woman-owned business enterprise and a preferred provider for the Chubb Insurance Company's Loss Prevention Consultation Services, which is good to know for all of our listeners out there for whom Chubb is your employment practices liability insurance carrier. EPS training courses have been approved by the Human Resource Certification Institute, HRCI, and consistently qualify for continuing legal education credits. Our attorney consultants are utilized not only as trainers, but also as employment practices experts in litigation on behalf of both plaintiffs and defendants alike. Lastly, federal and state courts have acknowledged the expertise of EPS consultants in the area of investigations and employment relations training. Welcome everybody. To begin our discussion, let's start with why do training at all? Um, There is a legal rationale for training, and there are also several reasons to do training that aren't strictly of a legal nature. Stephanie, you are both an employment law attorney and an experienced trainer, as well as the leader of our organization. Help us understand both the legal and the best practices, rationales. Or training.
1: Well, Lisa, to take to take the bird's eye view, there there are really so many reasons to train your work for, workforce on on various topics. Um, you want your employees to be knowledgeable, of course, and you want them to continuously learn and grow, and you can help them do that by providing educational opportunities. One of which is training, and I think an especially important type of knowledge to have. Um, is how to get along and collaborate with others at work. So training related to these concepts is usually characterized as anti-harassment training. But I like to couch it as creating a respectful workplace. And the overarching goal of this kind of training is to enhance the work environment and make it a more pleasant place to be. Now, there are a number of reasons why why we want to strive for that goal, and we often actually discuss these goals in our uh, training sessions. And the first reason is ethics. The fact that behaving in a mutually respectful manner is simply the right thing to do. There are also economic reasons to have a happy workforce and provide training to that end. There are plenty of studies and other data which confirm that people who feel respected at work show up more. (laughs) They actually, you know, have higher attendance, which is very important as a as a premise. Um, And when they are at work, they're more productive and are better team players. And conversely, we know that people who feel disrespected are the ones who file complaints and lawsuits which no one wants to deal with. Third, internal policies, which every organization should have, should include provisions for respect at work such as equal employment opportunity, anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, and anti-retaliation provisions. And finally, the law requires that we prevent certain types of unfair treatment, like discrimination, which is essentially treating somebody unfairly based on a protected characteristic. And when we do training on respect, we discuss what that means and how to prevent it, as well as preventing harassment, which is a a form of discrimination. We also ensure our best position in in the event of a lawsuit in that we can argue as part of our defense to that lawsuit that we're doing the best that we can here to ensure respect at work. And one more point, there are certain states like um, California and Connecticut, for example, that have actually taken things a step further and require employers to train on ensuring fair treatment at work so it's important to be familiar with your, your state requires as well.
0: So all of those uh, first rationales for training that you mentioned, those actually have an ROI, a return on the investment of training in and of itself. Creating a, work, a, a respectful workplace in and of itself, I always say is not just a means to an end. It actually can help a workplace be more productive. It can help in terms of effective communication. And those actually are things that, in the long, long run can save employers money, and it's an investment as opposed to just something that you do because you're compelled to do it from a legal perspective, is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Denise, employers have a lot of options to sift through when it comes to providing training to their employees. If we ever turn to Google and look at sexual harassment training, let's say, for example, in Dallas-Fort Worth, you're gonna get thousands of resources. So on the outside side, they can also use internal resources. An employer might turn to outside counsel or a firm that specializes in training. Can you help us kind of suss out all of these options and understand the pluses and minuses of them? How is an employer? Can I make the best decision when I'm selecting a training vendor?
2: You're correct. Employers do have a variety of good options when it comes to providing quality training for your team. Um, including your executives, your managers, and, of course, all employees. Um, One of the first considerations that an employer should look at is, you know, what type of training will work best for your organization? Do you want to conduct live training? Does it have to be online because you have remote employees? Or should there be some type of combination? Um, There are pros and cons of both. Uh, Frankly, live training is is likely to be more interactive, allows for questions, questions. and can have a a lively discussion or case study discussion and, you know, that's always beneficial so that employees feel like they have an opportunity to get their questions answered. Um, Online uh, allows for remote workers or or new employees to be trained at any time. Uh, And the last option, which is my personal preference, is providing live to the majority of your workforce and maybe supplement it with new hires or those that are too remote or difficult to get to training sessions. Um, I would just encourage employers to be sure that you consider all the modalities that are available for your needs. Um, now, to get to your question about options for internal trainers versus legal counsel or outside trainers, um, obviously, if the employer has an internal training and development department, they might want to take advantage of that group to deliver the necessary training. Um, and while those internal resources are likely to be most familiar with the industry and the organization, you also need to ensure that these trainers are fully equipped um, and, and insightful regarding the law when discussing employment relations issues uh, that, that Stephanie mentioned. And you want to be able to discuss things like performance management, leave laws, policies and procedures, so it would just be making sure that your internal resources have a working knowledge of the material and are able um, to get, you know, employees are able to get sound answers to any questions that they might have. Uh, Considering legal counsel as the trainer, you might have internal or external counsel that are likely qualified and experienced people. Uh, The possible downside of that is that it might be costly for an organization and outside of an employer's budget to use outside counsel for training. Um, In addition, outside counsel may opt to bow out because they don't want to jeopardize their opportunity to provide legal representation should the training become an issue in a future litigation matter. In that case, legal counsel might conflict themselves out of legally representing a company because they would be considered a fact witness. Um, But finally, then we have independent trainers to discuss. And while the internal trainers might be most cost effective, it has been my experience that sometimes the internal people are just too close to a situation, especially if um, the training is a result of something that occurred in the workplace or, or perhaps because that trainer has authoritative control over the attendees or reports in, or that that person reports to senior management, in that case, the participants might feel somewhat stifled or intimidated to participate or ask questions for fear of being scrutinized or retaliated against. Um, so the benefit of using an outs- outside expert trainer is that those trainers are typically neutral And what I mean by that is they come without an agenda or any preconceived perceptions of the employee uh, individuals attending the the training. This is important if you're not only doing a group training, but especially if you're doing a a one-on-one training, which we also provide options for individuals to be educated if they are needing some type of personalized training or counseling. Um, When an independent trainer comes in with a clean slate, and in our experience, participants are much more willing to engage in that in that situation. Um on the flip side, it could be a detriment if the outside trainer is not knowledgeable of your industry or not necessarily versed in your language or familiar with the intricacies of your business. Lisa, I just had one
1: um more point to to add to to what Denise said. Um and I, I just wanted to add that another option for training remote employees going back to what denise said in the beginning which you know training remote employees can be a, a challenge for many organizations and another option for them is webinars w- which were um Increasingly being asked to do at, our, at EPS, and that's where you get live training. that is I mean, you get online training that is facilitated live, so you get more interactive and dynamic training with the ability to ask questions. So that's an that's an option for organizations to explore as well.
0: Yeah, I think technology advancements are making it easier and easier, and more interactive, or providing more interactive options to deliver training. Denise, let me just circle back. If you are trying to look at a host of outside training options, can you give us some uh, insight into what considerations a, a, an employer might make when they're selecting? i know you've you kind of mentioned them in general, but can you bullet point us a few things to consider when you're when you're looking at outside vendors to deliver your training?
2: Sure. I think that um, as you're looking at subject matter experts in this area, you want to make sure that those trainers are you know familiar with your industry, familiar with your business. Um you want to look at whether the training um, group or individual will customize the training and will tailor it to your particular needs, um, will include your policies and procedures, or is it just stock material they're getting off the shelf that is doesn't have any opportunity for customization? Um, you want to make sure that the training is interactive and engaging because, in that case, and I think Jessica will speak to this point, um, you have to, in some states, as Stephanie mentioned, like California, for example, the training is actually statutorily expected to be interactive and engaging. So you want to make sure that that you'll have the opportunity to have that option. Um, and then you need to look at, you know, you know, will the training provider allow you to prepare and, and be a part of the preparation for the training, and will you have a chance to review any materials before they are actually put out to your, your workforce?
0: Those are all terrific points, and I think that the ability for the training course, and we're talking about live training and some modes of uh, web training and webinars that Stephanie mentioned, that is so important in terms of retention with for the trainees who are in the class. So, Jessica, let me shift to you. You develop lots of training courses for EPS. So help us understand the reasons for doing training and the options for training delivery, getting a better understanding of that from Stephanie and Denise. Can you talk a little bit about what constitutes a really terrific training class?
3: Sure, Lisa, as you and Denise Denise both mentioned, customization is key to a great training class. To that end, our job really is to work with the client to understand what a company's particular work environment is like and what specific workplace issues they may have And from there, to develop a training class that participants can relate to and also hits upon their company's particular hot button issues. As an example, we recently created a training class for a company where there were some concerns that people were getting a bit too comfortable with one another at work, which was leading to some potentially inappropriate comments and behaviors. So we developed a training course that had scenarios to reflect those particular concerns. Another hallmark of a great training class is that it is interactive. No one wants to listen to me, or anyone for that matter, talk for two hours straight. So we make sure to design our training classes with lots of room participation, which we do in part by incorporating different case studies and videos which are intended to elicit discussion. And finally, a great training class needs to be up to date with respect to the legal issues affecting workplaces. For example, our training classes now include discussions of the recent Supreme Court case Young versus UPS and the changing landscape with respect to accommodating pregnant women in the workplace. Social media is another important topic that needs to be included in training materials.
0: It sounds like it's probably a challenge for just an off-the-shelf training class that may have sat there for several years and delivered across a broad range of organizations that might be the easy solution but it may not be the best solution in terms of the class itself and imparting to the trainees what you want them to get out of the class.
1: Lisa, I just wanted to add, you know, training is such a significant investment with respect to time and resources that it's it's really important to do to do quality training and get the most for your time and money. So, you want to make sure that it's not only customized, but it's very high quality. And what we're often asked for is recommendations, which any quality outfit should be able to supply, um, you know, easily and quickly. And also oftentimes organizations want to meet the trainer. They want to, you know, get face-to-face with the person who's going to be facilitating training for their organization. So, you know, that's a good option as well if you want to make sure that, the relationship is a good fit.
0: Those are terrific points. So we've talked about the the why, the the who, or the what rather. Denise, now let's talk a little bit about who needs training and how often they need it. Does it depend on the industry? You guys have already mentioned that the necessity of training from a compliance standpoint varies by state. Uh, that I may be in as an employer. Denise, can you shed some light, give us some overarching guidance about how often to train and who should be trained?
2: Yeah, Lisa, I think there are two answers to that question of who needs training and and how frequently. Um, The first one we've discussed, which is the uh, legislative uh, requirements, but the second reason is even when there are no legal requirements to conduct training, it's really a best practice. at a minimum, I believe an employer should be educating its supervisors, managers and, and executives on all employment law matters regularly. Um, as we know, you know, the laws change frequently and anyone with supervisory responsibility over others needs to be up to date. Um, such training topics might include uh, the anti-harassment and discrimination that, that Stephanie mentioned, leave laws such as the family medical leave or the state equivalent Uh, The Fair Labor Standards Act regarding pay practices, an employee's rights and responsibilities regarding individuals with disabilities, or maybe just managing employee concerns should someone come to them with an issue. Uh, We also encourage employers to train all employees, including all new hires, on the laws and company policies. Topics um, that are appropriate uh, for that group might be um, behavior in the workplace, what's appropriate and inappropriate you know, to whom they can raise a complaint if they feel that they have been treated unfairly, and also company policies surrounding their rights as an employee. Um, So there's a lot of reasons to educate employees, and as Stephanie mentioned, there is a huge return on investment. And it's often the case, in my experience, that many times employees are then promoted to management, but have never been properly educated and trained on what Employees can and can't do in the workplace, and the legal rights of employees. So, you really want to start early and make sure that every employee, even new hires, know your procedures, your policies, and their legal rights and expectations at work. Now, to go to your question of how often, that's a tough question. I would say, you know, at a minimum, employers should be training every two years, but many of our clients opt to train, uh, conduct, conduct annual training. I would say anytime you have a major change, either in law or your policies, you really owe it to your employees to make sure that they are educated on that issue.
0: Denise, can I get you to parse one point a little bit further? Should employees and managers be trained in the same class? Should those be separate classes? Can you give us a little advice on, on that part of the who should be trained?
2: That's That's a great question, Lisa. In my experience, I believe that managers and employees should be trained separately. And the reason I say that is because there are responsibilities of managers that go above and beyond what an employee is expected to do. And I think the questions that managers have regarding how they work with their team might be different and more challenging to discuss if their team is in the room. So I always encourage employers to disassociate those groups and if we can have an employee training and a separate manager training, that's ideal. If we can have an employee training for everybody and then let the non-supervisors leave and we conduct a certain amount of time, uh, dedicate a certain amount of time to the managers, that's always helpful because you really want to discuss things like um, employee complaints, employee concerns, and how they would address them, which are just not appropriate for uh, non-supervisors.
0: Great, thank you for that. Steph, I want you to to kind of wrap it up for us, and this may be the most critical part of the discussion. When budgets are tight and businesses are challenged in any number of ways, you know, training can fall lower on the list of priorities for organizations to invest in. We have a lot of listeners who are human resource or legal professionals, and it's their job to make the business case for training internally. It may be one of their personal performance objectives. Can you articulate the case briefly, especially for those professionals that might experience some internal resistance to a training initiative?
1: Sure. I mean, I really think that because we spend so much of our time at work, it's in everyone's interest for it it to be as pleasant as possible. But as I mentioned earlier as well, there's a very strong business case to make for training disrespect costs money, and by training your workforce, you're going to minimize the significant costs associated with uh, complaints and lawsuits, which are going to happen if people feel disrespected. It's, it's inevitable. Beyond that, a content workforce produces more and, and higher quality work, which is going to result in a more successful business and positive imba- impact to your bottom line.
0: The key phrase I think you use at all employers, if there's one thing to take away from our discussion today, it's disrespect to respect costs money. Thank you to our panel, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You can find details about training and all EPS services and listen to additional Real Solutions podcasts at our website, epspros.com. That's E-P-S-P-R-O-S dot com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenges you face as HR and legal professionals, and we hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.